Hi, and thank you for downloading This is US Sustainability, the podcast from the US Sustainability Alliance, the voice of US sustainable food and agricultural production. This is the first of four episodes about the USSA's press visit to Louisiana. I had the privilege of joining the trip as part of a delegation of food and agricultural journalists from the UK and Europe. We stayed in Baton Rouge and visited farms and research centres in the area. And I recorded interviews for this podcast in person with our guests on location. And honestly, it was fantastic to meet the farmers and experts in the flesh and, of course, to sample some of the local culture and cuisine. Um, I have to say we were made very welcome by everyone we visited. So a huge thanks from me personally to everyone involved in making that trip happen. Uh, Now, coming up in this episode, you'll hear my interview with Dr. Mike Strain, Louisiana's Commissioner of Agriculture and Forestry. Commissioner Strain gives an insight into the huge amount of work undertaken by his department and the Louisiana food and agricultural sector. Uh, But before all that, I'm delighted to welcome back to the podcast David Green, Executive Director of the US Sustainability Alliance. David, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Oh, thanks, Ross. Pleasure to be uh, talking to you again. Indeed. So I thought we could start by you just explaining the USSA's objective in actually arranging a a press visit to the uh, United States. Very much to raise the profile of the USSA and also particularly with media to try and correct some of the uh, misunderstandings and provide information. If I I sort of maybe take a step back, if we go back several years, I was involved in uh, the launch of genetically modified crops, which was a hugely controversial issue in Europe. They first turned up in Europe right when there were a lot of food scares and uh, a farmer in the United States uh, said to me one day, oh, I hear that Europe has got a problem with GM crops. Is it the same problem I have? And his problem was he couldn't buy enough seed to plant. And when I told him, no, that's not <laughs> the case, that basically Europe doesn't want GM crops, he could not understand it because to him it was the best technology ever came on the farm. And his father was the best technology. What that flagged up to me was that people have information, but they need to have the context as well. And his context was, this was the best technology in the farm. His information was, Europe's got a problem. Oh, it must be the same problem as mine. For Europeans, their information was, America's producing these genetically modified crops and shipping them over to us. And our context is, we've had food scares in every country. So what, what USSA is, is trying to do and, and looking to do, and in particular this media tour, was to provide context to information that they may have. And I think having journalists come out, particularly the journalists who came from four different countries who are specialised in agriculture and food, having them see firsthand what is going on on the ground, talking to farmers, talking to officials, was really the driving force for this yeah, and why Louisiana in particular? Um, two main things, Russ. It's a huge port. Most food and agriculture products ship out of Louisiana. Also, it's a very big agricultural state, both commodity crops and also seafood. And uh, importantly, it was the time of year. We took the media out in uh, November and uh, southern states. It's that The climate is that much better, much easier for going and farm visits particularly. Uh, David, you mentioned uh, the port of Baton Rouge, one of the places that we actually visited on the trip. I guess that links nicely to a question that I wanted to ask, which was about international trade. I mean, how much trade do USSA members 
currently do across Europe? Uh, good question, Ross. We have 25 members of the Alliance that spreads across the commodity crops, uh, specialty products, almonds, peanuts, to fresh seafood, meat, and supply chain partners like the shippers and traders. So we have 25 members and uh, collectively they would export in the region of just under $8 billion worth of food and agricultural exports to Europe, to the UK, UK and the EU27. That's close to two thirds of all food and agricultural products. So the Alliance does represent a very significant export value to Europe. And again, just picking up on on the bit that you mentioned right at the start about those kind of myths and and misconceptions, um, are there any you know specific main misconceptions that the USSA needs to challenge at all? I think one of the biggest misconceptions that uh, we have found over the years and continue to to find is for many Europeans they see American farmers as being corporate entities, large scale, producing across vast acres. Uh, plowing up prairies and so on. These are not large-scale operations. For sure, compared to Europe, some of the farm sizes might seem big, but the uh, latest U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, report on uh, farming in the United States shows that 98% of American farms are family-owned and operated. For sure, they might have company status, but that again is uh, no different than many European farms that will, uh, family farms that will uh, register themselves as companies. So farming in the US is very much a family operation. And uh, the media saw this on their their trip around Louisiana when they met farm families. So that's one of the big misconceptions. Another is that, um, you know, it's a free for all when it comes to agriculture production. Uh, there's no real oversight. In fact, there are, I think it's 20 U.S. federal laws that govern sustainability and conservation of U.S. land and waters. Those are very much in force and very much farmers must comply with them. So, And that's in addition to uh, individual state laws that would have their own uh, compliance legislation. And alongside that, there are voluntary standards that uh, many of our member member associations will apply to uh, their sectors. I'm thinking of the beef industry particularly have very high st- uh, voluntary standards that they expect their members to produce. And that's basically set by the marketplace rather than some prescriptive uh, approach that's often taken in Europe, particularly when we look at sustainability, uh, looking at certification, a prescriptive way of saying this is how you produce or you know EU legislation saying this is how you must uh, produce to be uh, to be seen as sustainable. Um, voluntary standards uh, geared to the marketplace. The marketplace, the retailers, consumers will be very demanding. It's not to say they're better. It's just a different approach to to uh, to take. Um, and I think another misconception is American farmers' use of technology. Uh, often we've come across the the attitude. Uh, among European consumers and uh, stakeholders and some officials as well, that American farmers are too quick to grab technology. Um, For sure, they look at technology, they will adopt it if if it works and if it's safe. They're no different than a farmer anywhere. If a technology works, it will be used. If it doesn't work, it won't be used, as simple as that. If I go back to the GMO crop uh, introduction, farmers at the time were somewhat skeptical. Uh, They would try maybe 
part of the farm growing the technology. The, the farmer I mentioned earlier, for sure, he, he grew, I think, 100 acres on his 1,200-acre uh, farm. The first year, it worked very well. The second year, he expanded his acreage. It worked even better. And within four years, he was 95% uh, dedicated to that crop. The technology worked. And you also see precision agriculture, which is an incredibly uh, efficient way of conserving uh, water, ensuring that the right nutrients and uh, chemicals are applied evenly and to where they're needed in the, in the soil. So we're seeing also from uh, farm associations in Europe, increasing interest in precision agriculture and, and uh, micro irrigation. So the, the, the adoption of technology is definitely there, but it has to be safe and proven. Well, just picking up on that aspect of technology, this is something Commissioner Strain talked about in my chat with him. And uh, what certainly came across is the close relationship between researchers and farmers and all the sharing of information they have. So probably a good time to hear that interview. Uh, I started by asking him to introduce his department and outline his role. Well, we're the largest regulatory agency in the state, slightly under 600 employees. We have 26 boards, commissions, and authorities with about 500 people serving. So almost anything that's in commerce, you buy, you sell, whatever, you eat it, we regulate it. So I'm responsible to make sure that you get what you're paying for and that it's safe, that it's wholesome, and it meets national and international standards. And you cover a number of different uh, areas, don't you? We do. I'm traditional agriculture. When you think about, you know, as we say, cows and plows, I'm also the commissioner of the Office of Forestry, so we're responsible for forest health. We are responsible for, you know, just the overall nature of the timber industry, and that's about 18.6 million acres of which 15 million acres is farmed renewable timber. I'm the state's chief firefighter. We have multiple uh, law enforcement agencies, and one of those is in the timber division, timber enforcement. I'm the commissioner of agriculture and consumer services, and that's where the office of metrology is, weights, measures, and standards. And so we're also responsible for the grain elevators. If the grain elevators go into bankruptcy, I have to take them over. I have to run them. And then um, the consumer services, in addition to that, environmental services, agriculture and environmental services, where all the restricted use chemical programs are. I'm the commissioner of the Office of Soil and Water Conservation. And so we work directly hand-in-hand with the USDA National Research Conservation Service on conservation. More than $100 million a year is administered there. I'm the commissioner of the Department of Animal Health and Food Safety. So we deal with all the diseases of the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, food safety, uh, we do all the inspection, you know, of the meats, the proteins, working hand-in-hand with the USDA. We oversee all the auction houses as well. We have a team of people always out, five veterinarians that work with the federal veterinarians. We have animal health technicians. If you think about traditionally looking for brucellosis, tuberculosis, avian influenza, you know, you can just go on down the disease litany of what we're always looking for and working to make sure it never raises, you know, its ugly head. You know, I'm the commissioner. Also, we have uh, in management and finance, we have our own banking system where we administer a number of programs. One, that's where the certified Louisiana program is housed. That's where we manage our industrial facilities. When we do work with rural economic development, but we also administer state and federal funds. So programmatic funds that have to go out generally in a very rapid fashion after a hurricane or a drought or whatever. So we are working today as we speak on seafood grants, working with our seafood industry. 
We are working uh, with USDA dollars to help get fruits and vegetables from uh, minority and uh, new and beginning farmers and get that into the food bank system. Uh, we also work with our food banks through our food distribution system and also with the schools. And we also, as again, we oversee the state's lands as well as the Alexander State Forest, which is a 10,000-acre forest. We have our own, quote, recreation area. And so we do many, many things. And then when there's a crisis or a hurricane, I am responsible to make sure that all government and all emergency services have fuel. Any emergency, ice storm, hurricane, fuel, logistics, working with, you know, moving people, pets together. So we're very fortunate. We have some very, very, very talented people working with us. But we're also charged with promotion. So a big part of my job, and the first thing the Constitution says, is promotion. So to help grow agriculture and to grow, you know, the rural areas of the state and grow our products. That's, that's another part that's a fun part. Just a few things to keep you busy. Yes, a few things to keep me busy, yes. That's amazing. Um, we are here in Louisiana this week. We're visiting farms and, and research centers, learning all about the latest developments in, in ag and, and sustainability. You must be extremely proud of the work that your colleagues are doing here. They're doing extreme work, and we work hand in hand. You know, a lot of the funding from the ag centers comes through us, and we also work, to, you know, to help in the legislative process to make sure they have appropriate funding. Our universities and our agricultural centers that come through our land-grant universities, there's very little space between what's researched and found and then put into the hands of our farmers. So we regularly have field days in every commodity where the latest and greatest information is presented to the farmers, but we also have extension agents that work with our land grants and with our ag centers to put that information into the farmers' hands. And if you look at, you know, the, the technology is growing rapidly. And then also the application of that technology and working with, again, our private industries. And there's a whole new world out there of the way all this can work and to actually expedite it. So we're very proud. We're going to be visiting the port of Greater Baton Rouge. I was wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about the significance of the port and, and also how important it is for trade in the area. If you look at the port of Baton Rouge in and of itself, it's the seventh largest port in the United States. If you look at the Port of South Louisiana, that's the largest tonnage port system in the hemisphere. If you go from Baton Rouge to the mouth of the river, that's the largest tonnage port system in the world. Here in Baton Rouge, you have some major investments. We have a new company coming in, Grand Industry. That's a $9 billion investment. We are working to put in another berth so that we can berth four deep water vessels in Baton Rouge at the same time. And that's about a $16 billion project. We just are finishing putting in a chambering yard where we can bring in unit trains, and that was a multi-year $24 million investment. If you look at the amount of money that Louis Dreyfus and Drax has just spent right here, and you can see it from the bridge, you know, you're talking about more than $100 million there. And so if you look at what's going on, we are expanding births, we are growing our ability to export, and if, if you look at up and down the river, the Port of Baton Rouge, that is located on about 80 total miles of river frontage. And there are more facilities planned. A number of the facilities that are, are on our levee systems and along the Mississippi River, they are in expansion mode. Why? We've dredged it to 50 feet. Right now, we're, we're going to bring in this year about 235 ships. You know, our shipping is up 24%. Our tonnage is up 18%. More than 570,000 jobs, you know, are 
as what it provides. So it is a huge economics, huge. Very soon, we will be exporting up to 70% of the nation's grain, and it all begins right here in Baton Rouge. In addition to that, for further uh, ability to load barges and unload barges and onto ships, they have now using mid-river grain barge loaders and unloaders. So also in the river, so where the, the barges never touch the shore, they're a moving product in the middle of the river. And so that's another way that we can more rapidly increase our ability to export and import. So it comes both ways. And if you look at the new things being developed where we're going to be using wood products for chemicals as well as fuel, but also the other things that we're going to be doing with soybean crushing, developing renewable fuels from, from soybeans, in addition to that, looking at all other aspects of what we can do to export, because when we export, that brings in hard dollars to America, but it also helps us get a better price for our own commodities for our farmers when we have more efficient export facilities. And so there's tremendous private investment there on public lands, because that's who owns the land where those facilities are, but it works hand-in-hand hand with the state and the federal government, and this is America's superhighway, America's economic superhighway, and it's growing dramatically because we really are focusing on our infrastructure, and that's a big part of it. And I was going to ask, that a lot of the projects that you're talking about there, that's going to enhance the supply chain efficiency. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you look at, for instance, uh, that quarter billion dollars that we've invested just in dredging the river, that in and of itself will put $750 million a year, three quarters of a billion dollars, in the pockets of our farmers every year. That's 25 cents a bushel every year from now on. If you also look at what does it mean, it means an additional five feet of draft in those vessels, bigger vessels, deeper vessels, and on average, on a just a ocean-going vessel, it's about a million dollars a foot of additional cargo we can put in there. So it means a lot. And so we'll be you know, having more loaded so they don't have to leave here short loaded. And again, because we're 230 miles upriver, but we're going to bring in more ships and bigger ships. You know, We produce one out of three acres of America's production. One out of three acres is exported. 20% of the food that's exported to the entire world comes through the United States. And we're going to capture 70% of that grain right here on this river system. So it's a huge economic driver, but the efficiencies are just tremendous. And if you watch them load these ships, they'll load these ships in 24 hours. And they'll move another ship in in about 30 minutes. It's docked, and it is underway. And everything is in motion. Those big grain elevators you see, they're not for storage. They're for moving product. And so what you have to think about the grain industry is everything is in constant motion. And that's why supply chain logistics are so important. That's why putting in these chambering yards or additional abilities, you know, for truck unloading or for moving barges, all of that works together. And the bottom line, what does that mean? It means two things. One is more money in the pockets of our farmer, but two, lower net unit cost per ton of goods moved. The Mississippi has had record low levels of water, hasn't it? What, what's been the impact that that's had on the area and also the commerce? Well, what's happened in the area is, one, instead of moving barges multiple wide, you know, two and three wide, in a lot of areas we've had to go to two or to one wide, depending on how far up the river you are. They've been short-loading barges, so instead of loading them to 13 feet, they may be loading them to six feet. 
So what it has done is increased the freight per ton and has had a market increase, tripling the cost per ton of freight from St. Louis, Missouri, say, to here. Now, we will get rain in the spring. We are dredging, you know, upriver to deal with that. We're also, though, you know, contemplating what do we need to do so that we can have, again, multimodal transportation. So we need to further invest in our rail systems as well so that you know, when we can't, if we can't move barges, we've got to move rail. The product must move. It cannot stay in place because we have to move the crop out to get the new crop in, and then all that's got to be in motion. And at the end of the day, you know, we're looking at, you know, what do we need to change? And we're looking at that very, very seriously. But dredging of the river and then understanding, you know, the, the cyclical nature of the, of the climate that we're dealing with. But the rains will come and they will float in the spring and we will we'll be moving. But we're also telling all of our farmers, and I've been talking to them for many years, we need more on-farm storage so that when we have weather events or you have whatever events, the better you can store your product, that way you can selectively ship when it is more convenient or more financial advantageous to you. So we're trying to build more storage, and if you travel and you look at the farms, you see a lot of those new bins, a lot of discussion about that as well. Uh, now, one of the things that we've heard about on our tour is your certified Louisiana mark, and I know it's something very important to you, and you're obviously you know, fronting it and heavily involved in it. Tell us a, a little bit more about that particular program and also why it's so important. Well, it's so important because, you know, you have a local food movement, but also our Louisiana products are recognized worldwide. You know, when you think about Tabasco or you think about Uncle Larry's stew in a few or you think about, you know, all of our different spices, all the wonderful things, you know, people want to have a touch and taste and smell and be a part of our culture. And you do that through certified Louisiana. And so by promoting that, we can help promote large and small companies. The majority of our companies that are in certified Louisiana are small and medium companies, and we're helping them to grow. And so we're telling the consumer here in Louisiana to buy fresh, to buy local, to buy that certified Louisiana products because it's produced or predominantly processed here in Louisiana. And there's so many talented people that are coming up with so many great ideas and so many wonderful products and it's catching on, and it's really growing rapidly. And that program is helping, you know, to build that local food economy. I've got one final question for you to finish off, given the nature um, and topic of our podcast. What's the key sustainability message from the LDAF? The key sustainability message is that we want the soil and the water and the farm to be get better every year. A farm is not like a light switch. You don't just turn it on and off. It's like a marriage. They gets better and better and better with time. And so when you look at the, the long term, what we're doing to enhance, you know, the quality of our soil, to enhance the nature of our environment, to enhance our ability to better utilize the limited resources that we have on this earth, that's the key important part because we're going to have to produce more with less in a more sustainable fashion. If you think about between now and 2050, we have to double the world's food supply. We have to produce more food between now and 2050 in, you know, 30-something growing seasons than we have since the dawn of time. And as the largest exporter of food in the world, our share, we have to triple our production on existing land with existing resources. And so we take that very seriously. We can only do that by being more environmentally sustainable and also finding out better ways to utilize those natural resources, but you can't deplete them. You must enhance them each and every year. So we're working on things 
We're looking at how we can better manage our forest to where they capture more carbon, they capture more nitrogen, you know, they hold more phosphorus, they retain water better, all of those things that we're doing so that, you know, as we, you know, look what goes in our waterways because we have a massive seafood industry, our bays, our estuaries, all of that works hand in hand as we grow food production between now and 2050. Commissioner Strain, thank you so much thank for joining you. us. David, there was um, a huge amount covered in the chat that I had with uh, Commissioner Strain. What, what stood out for you from all the aspects of the areas that he covered? Yes, he certainly he certainly uh, covered uh, a huge amount. Um, there were a couple of things that really stood out for me, and and particularly, and as I mentioned earlier, his his uh, description of the port and the facilities and the infrastructure and the investment that's going into it. You know, until you actually see it in person, it is hard to imagine. I lived in the United States for 26 years, but when I first went to uh, New Orleans port, I, I was stunned. There was nothing like it in Europe. Rotterdam maybe would come close. And what you have in New Orleans and uh, in Baton Rouge, you've got crops such as corn, soybeans, cotton coming from all parts of the U.S., down, down the Mississippi, down the Missouri, river barges, all the way down. The barges are filled up by extra shipments along routes. So, you know, you get this great collecting facility. So that, that I think, was extremely interesting to hear the investment that's been put into both public and private that's been put into the port. Uh, the second thing was his mention of the extension services. That's the advisory services of the Department of Agriculture. That's a very important role. I think there are, uh, I can't think, 2,000 extension service offices <clears throat> across the main agricultural areas in the United States. And farmers have great access to the knowledge and to the uh, advice from, from those uh, USDA uh, advisors. Uh, and then go back to my technology point, particularly uh, when it comes to new technology, being able to tap into USDA's independent advice and uh, and uh, knowledge is, is another thing that I, I was glad to hear him bring up. And, and I think, again, he made the point that uh, farming is not a light switch. And uh, it's no different from farmers across the world. But I think for the media that uh, visited, they were able to see uh, family farms and that uh, basically farming is uh, it's 24-7. You just don't sort of switch off. And that feeds into this use of technology. We're going to have to produce more and we're going to have to produce it sustainably, full conservation of land and water resources. And to be able to meet this growing world population, uh, which is basically 2030 is seven harvests away um, when we're going to reach, uh, I've forgotten the figure, nine billion people on the planet. The, the, the uptake of new technology is absolutely going to go hand in hand with producing sustainably. So those were, those were I think, the main points that I thought uh, came across to me from uh, Commissioner Strain's uh, very, very uh, detailed overview. Excellent. Great summary, David. Listen, we're going to catch up again on the uh, fourth and final episode from our trip uh, to Louisiana. But for now, David Green, thanks again for joining the podcast. Thanks, Ross. Well, the various themes that we have spoken about today will be covered in those upcoming 
upcoming episodes, so climate change in motion, multi-generation farms, and in the following episode, innovation and how it makes it into the hands of farmers. Uh, But in the meantime, if you want to learn more about the US Sustainability Alliance, please visit the website, which is thesustainabilityalliance.us. You'll find plenty of additional information about all the topics we've discussed in this episode on that site. And don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast on your favourite podcast app. And of course, if you've enjoyed the show, please do give us a positive rating and review. But for now, from me, Russell Goldsmith, thanks for listening and goodbye.